John Hutchinson has had, by any measure, a wonderful flying career. From his post-war start on Harvard's through such classic aircraft as the Shackleton, the Boeing 707, the Boeing 747, the Vickers VC-10 and the iconic supersonic transport aircraft, the Concorde, he has spent more time at Mach 2 than most military pilots. We talked to him about his book, The Wind Beneath My Wings. I'm here to talk to John Hutchinson about his marvellous life and your fabulous book, John. So thank you very much indeed for letting us come to speak to you today. Oh, great pleasure, Nick. It's nice to see you. Thank you. I'm going to fire straight off with uh, the first questions and uh, I'm, I'm really trying to pick areas uh, of the book that you might not have discussed before and that uh, particularly piqued my interest. But uh, the first thing I noted was that you were brought up uh, in India during a fascinating period of history. Um, the partition of India and Pakistan, the handing over of uh, uh, India, or the, the India moving from uh, previous control of the British Empire. Uh, how much do you think your early life moulded your uh, the person you have uh, become? What an interesting question. What I'll say to start with is that it was fascinating. My father was in the Indian Army. He was a colonel. He was the archetypal Indian Army colonel. And he spent the 1930s up and down the northwest frontier. Oh, wow. That's places like Gilgit and Fort Sandeman and all these places. And the, the great fear was that the Russians would come in into India through Afghanistan. Mm. Um, Second World War came. And Dad was reassigned to sort of staff duties. And at the end of the war, as we started going into the business of partition, uh, he worked under Mountbatten um, up in Simla. Um, Shimla, I suppose I should say now. And um, uh, I have to say he had very little time for Mountbatten. He didn't like him at all. Uh, he thought he was a rather pompous man who was a bit full of himself but there we are that's another story um, but my memories of India all my mates were Indians there weren't any other boys of my age around who were white so you know I grew up with Indians and I I can remember for instance in the winter they used to flood the tennis courts in Simla and that became the ice skating rink. It was that cold? It jolly well was. It's oh, about wow. 7,000 feet up in the Himalayas. Well, not many people would have thought that. No, no, no. It's very cold. I mean, there was one winter when they had so much snow that the railway station subsided, collapsed under the weight of <laughs> snow. I'm not kidding. Well, I never. That was the winter of 1947, I think. 46 into 47. Um, and I used to sit in our house looking down on the tennis court and wait for the red balloon to be hoisted, indicating that the skating rink was fit for duty. I love and it. I'd go down there and I'd spend the day skating with all these Indian mates of mine. So the business of sort of color, or, and, and I've, you know, I've, I've, it's quite interesting in, in the last year or two, there's been all sorts of comments about the role of the British in India and really rather sort of 
hostile criticism. All I can tell you is that I never saw any of that at all. Um, our servants were part of our family. And I remember when our Aya, our nanny, who almost was my surrogate mother, I mean, she looked after me more than my mother did, to be perfectly frank. I can remember Dad taking her off to the railway station to put her on a train to go to what is now Pakistan. She was in tears. We were in tears. I mean, it was saying goodbye to a member of our family. And I will never know to this day whether or not she ever survived that journey because yeah. those trains used to get ambushed and they'd all be slaughtered. I mean, yeah. the killing that went on in during partition was absolutely on a monumental scale. It really was. Uh, but none of it was directed towards the Brits. It was all Hindu, Muslim. But being part of that, uh, so, do you think it made a, you so a stronger how, person? So how did it mold my life subsequently? This, that, that's a very difficult... For a start, race isn't an issue with me. You know, I mean, I've, to me, I've always been used to... Uh, the whole concept of sort of racism is something I... is really, to me, quite foreign. Um, so I suppose that's one, one effect it had on me. Um, I suppose the sort of, uh, this isn't really India, though. this is more my family sort of upbringing, which was very strict and, um, and you know, a very disciplined environment. Um, that carried me through in very good stead when I joined the Royal Air Force, I suppose. Discipline was something I was sort of used to. <laughs> Excellent. It's interesting. Of your schooling, you wrote in the book, I knew how much work I would have to do to be able to join the RAF. I did the minimum amount necessary, which I loved. Uh, what's your advice nowadays to those thinking of uh, making a career for themselves in aviation? I would say don't do the minimum <laughs> necessary. <laughs> go, go for broke and do as much as you possibly can. Excellent. <laughs> because it's such a competitive world now, isn't it? Yes. I mean, when I came onto the scene in 1955, you could grandly look around and survey the scene and think, oh, I'll be a doctor or this or that or the next thing. And it, it was just a totally different world. Um, but I never wanted to be anything else other than an RAF pilot. I don't blame you. I see you started your flying training in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. And that's a fairly remote place, but once uh, you you must have uh, flown over it later in your life, perhaps on a, a route, say to San Francisco or somewhere. What memories did that bring back as you were sitting on your 747 looking down? I never want to see Moose Jaw ever again in my life. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was it was a fantastic place for a flying training school. It was about 40 miles, 50 miles north of the U.S. border had a tremendous reputation in Prohibition era, era oh, wow. because the Americans would all flood across the Canadian border 
and buy their booze in Moose Jaw. And it was all, I mean, they had saloon bars with all these sort of swing doors and things, just like you see in a oh, that must in be a fabulous. Um, but it was as flat as a pancake. Uh, the roads either went north, south or east, west. Um, if you got lost, all you did was fly down low level in your Harvard until you came past a grain elevator and all the grain elevators had the name of the little settlement painted on the side of the grain elevator and you then found that on your map. <laughs> there you were, you now knew how to get home, back to Moose Jaw. So it, it, was, it was a fabulous place from a flying training point of view. But the weather, I mean, the weather was good in flying terms, probably 75, 80% of the time. And then it was so bad that you couldn't possibly consider flying. There was sort of no in-betweens. Um, but the temperatures, I mean, in the summer it would get up to plus 40 and in the winter minus 40. And, you know, you could feel your nose freezing up as you breathed air in through your nose. You did not breathe in through your mouth in those sort of temperatures. You breathe through your nose to avoid sort of freezing your lungs up. I guess you had to do survival courses in case you jumped out uh, in the in the bush, as it were. Funny enough, I didn't do a survival course until I'd got my wings and finished my flying training. <laughs> and then I did the survival course. Perhaps they considered bit, you expendable bit, up to that bit point. Back to front, isn't yes. it? <laughs> I would have thought so. Oh, I like that very much. Now, despite your ambivalent feelings towards uh, Moose Jaw, you seemed as if your intense pa intense passion for the joys of uh, flying blossom there yeah i had a very difficult time to start with um, um you know, i had a very unforgiving instructor bear in mind i was at this stage 18 and a half i'd never driven a car i was very immature quite frankly um and to be presented with a harvard as your ab initio trainer is quite it is quite a challenge i mean it's a big lump of metal a mm. harvard Powerful too. And powerful. And it had vices, you know, it would flick stall, uh, tip up on its nose, no trouble at all, ground loop on landing, no trouble at all. Aye. Had all sorts of little vices to catch you out. Um, and I did my first test, it was called the preliminary clearhood test at 15 hours and I failed it comprehensively. So I was now sort of under review for for the chop and I was reassigned a different instructor who is a completely different kettle of fish and he just built up my confidence and then it took me about 23 hours to go solo something like that 23 24 hours and he sent me solo and then shortly after that something clicked I don't know what it was the hand-eye coordination suddenly clicked and I have never ever looked back on a course since with I've never had any problems with any course since you know it, it gave me a tremendous grounding the Harvard and I think my sort of moral of that story would be that if you could fly a Harvard you could sort of more or less fly anything yeah it's interesting isn't it nowadays trainers seem to be very benign uh, and I wonder sometimes if that's the right way around. As an ex-flying instructor, I would totally agree with that. My last three years in the Air Force was instructing on Jet Provost, yeah. which is incredibly benign. Yeah. 
and I think you yourself went on to follow Nats, if I, if I That's right, heard yes. it all correctly. Yeah. Um, and going from a jet provost to a fallen Nat was a quantum leap. Yeah. Which was... you probably weren't really properly prepared for. <laughs> but luckily we all survived. Later on in your career, you would become a flying instructor. Uh, would your experiences as a student have affected you and in the way you taught uh, the people to fly that you came across? Yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Made you perhaps a more understanding and sympathetic yeah. instructor? Yes. I mean, I have one great regret. Um, I had a wonderful student who'd come up through the ranks and he was passionately keen on flying and he wasn't a natural pilot and I was determined to get him through absolutely determined and I did get him through and he ended up on C-130s and very sadly ended up crashing in a C-130. I can't remember from Lynham maybe, or was it Bryson I can't remember. Could well have been Lynham, or it could have been either actually. Yeah, it yeah, could have been either, I just can't remember. But I've always sort of felt perhaps I shouldn't have tried so hard to get him, get him through. Perhaps he really wasn't a natural pilot. I don't know. Yeah, that was the only thing I ever think back as a, an instructor, when you had someone eventually who you had to give the bad news to, that they weren't going to progress, was that perhaps in the future you were saving their life. But yeah, I know well, I, I, got, I, I got really emotionally involved with this guy, mm -hmm. and it became a sort of absolute overriding challenge for me. I was determined, he, because he was so enthusiastic mm. and so keen. And I do often think, man, Maybe I didn't do him any favours. I hope not. I hope that wasn't the case. No, I hope not too. I see you moved on to jet training on the T-33 Silver Star at Gimli. Now that airfield would of course become famous but for another reason. It did, didn't it? But what was it like then? <laughs> that, was, that was a complete contrast to Moose Jaw. And we were there in the summer. And there's a beach on the lake there. And there were all sorts of pretty girls there in bikinis. So when we weren't flying, we were down on the beach. It was a very, very different, different setup altogether. And the T-33 was a lovely aeroplane. Very benign handling and very strong, robust aeroplane. And just a delight to fly. Was it I quick? It. Was it fast? I said sort of back point eight, that sort of speed, yeah. Very nice. But it was a very nice aeroplane. Now I read that you lost a fellow student during training. The same happened to me. How did it affect you? Yeah, that was a, this was a NATO training scheme that I was there under the auspices of. So we had all these different people from different NATO countries on my course. And this was a Turkish chap, Erza Ermin, I think his name was. Very elegant, 
very well educated, very classy man, um, and uh, a very good pilot as well. And um, I don't know what happened, but he speared in from 40,000 feet straight into Lake Winnipeg. Good Lord. Um, I can only assume he was unconscious from what, for some reason or another. Uh, we'll, we'll never know. His body was recovered, and it was a fairly shocking experience going to, going to his funeral. Did the students, uh, I mean, was there any effort made by the staff to ease the students through this, or was it all very much as I would have expected it to be in those times, all sort of get on with, it's all business, get on with it? It's all, this is what happens, just get on with it. Interesting. I've never, never had this experience of being cancelled. <laughs> I'm afraid. No, no. Um, I, I, you know, I firmly believe that, you know, things happen to you, stuff happens. You've got to deal with it and just get on with life. And the, the worst example of that for me was our eldest son dying, which is catastrophic. And you don't ever get over that. Never. You'd learn to live with it, um, but there's no, you know, it's 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 no good going on and on and on about it. You know, it's it's happened. It, nothing's going to change that, and it's no memorial to him if you sort of collapse in a heap. You've just got to get on. I understand. My understand. sadness in that is that we didn't appreciate the impact it had on his younger brother. We were so obsessed with our own grief, Sue and I, um, that we rather sidelined him. And it was only years later that it suddenly all came pouring out from him. It's very difficult, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's not like anyone prepares you for this. Nobody prepares you for a thing like that, no, oh. no. And I never had any, neither of us ever had any counseling about that terrible experience either. But it seems like your family is, is a happy family. Oh, yeah. We're very, I mean, we've only got the one son. We're extremely close to him. We've got three wonderful grandchildren, one of whom is at Cambridge University. Oh. And doing, I think, she'll be quite an exceptional lady. She's a very good actress, but she's the sort of person who's very motivated. Um, I think her problem is going to be deciding what she's going to do with oh, her life. What a problem to have. <laughs> what a problem to have, yeah. Let's move on to uh, your time flying the Venom. I was uh, um, somewhat alarmed to read that you lost your canopy. Uh, that's a pretty serious situation. Could you talk us through that? It wasn't a Venom, it was a it vampire. A vampire, okay. Vampire T11. Who wrote these, who wrote these questions? Sorry, do carry on. <laughs> 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 Never flown a Venom. Okay. Um, actually, do you know, that's an interesting question because I can't remember if it was a T-11 that I was flying. I, no, I think it would have been a Vampire 5. It would be a Vampire 5 or a 9. Um, and I'm just flying along and suddenly there was this loud bang. And I was <laughs> sitting out there in the open, <laughs> much to my surprise. I mean, the airplane still flew all right. So I descended, came back and landed, 
This is, I was based at RAF Worksop, which of course doesn't even, I've met somebody from Worksop not so long ago, they didn't even know there had been an RAF Oh, it's probably up. a pig farm. Yeah, no. I'm sure it is. <laughs> I'm sure it is. But, so I had to assure him that I was actually posted to RAF works off in 1957, I promise you. There really was an RAF airfield there. Um, anyway, I went back and landed. And in fact, the canopy had come off. I don't know where on earth it landed. I have no idea. But, the, it, you know, with the um, uh, vampire, there's sort of twin booms with a sort of tailplane that, that went between the two booms. The canopy had hit the the bit between the two booms mm. and left a massive, great, I mean, almost severed it completely. Wow, which, you're lucky it didn't. Which might have been interesting. Oh, if it would have been happened. very interesting, <laughs> no doubt. Oh, I'm glad you didn't come home and do a barrel roll in there. No, no, was no. it a bit noisy? It was quite noisy, yes. Could you actually hear anyone on the radio? I think I must have done. <laughs> Good for you. Excellent. Excellent. Now, obviously, you did well in your training and were recommended for fighters. Indeed, the marvellous Hawker Hunter. What happened? You were posted to heavies in the end. Yeah, that was the that was a crushing moment in my life. I can tell you, it's all I wanted to do was fly hunters. Um, Duncan Sands, the Minister of Aviation or Minister for Air or whatever his title was, I don't know, Secretary of State. For Ferrer made this great pronouncement that they weren't going to require fighter pilots any longer. It was all going to be done with surface-to-air missiles. And not one of our course went on to fighters. Oh, really? Oh, wow. I was one of the lucky four who went to Coastal Command. And oh. I say lucky four because in Coastal Command you were fully trained and it was sort of sector by sector, just like in the airline world. You know, the captain would do one sector, then the co-pilot the next. You you were a fully trained pilot. In Transport Command in those days, my understanding was from the chaps who went into Transport Command that basically, to start with, they were there for no other purpose than to lower undercarriages, raise the flaps and do the communications. Oh. Um, I mean, that's all long since changed, but the culture in Coastal Command, even back then, was that the co-pilot had to be fully trained and, you know, had to do half the flying sort of thing. Mm. And I was on the Mark I Shackleton, so that was a tail dragger, direct descendant of the Lancaster, and looking back on it now, I'm very proud of the fact that I've in effect flown the Lancaster hmm. um, and it was a it was a fantastic aeroplane the Shackleton I mean it's I don't know how long it was in service for from start to finish but it must oh have been a little too long I think it must have been something <laughs> like 45 or yes. 45 years well it something. was still going when I was in the Air I Force mean, it, for it, many years yeah absolutely and the great thing was about this that I was actually posted out to Singapore to 205 Squadron, based at RAF Changi, and we look at Changi now and it's a bit different, um, but in those days it was a rather splendid RAF airfield, and they had uh, a Far East Communications Squadron, 
Far East Air Force Communications Squadron. And they had Pembrokes, Meteors, and Vampires. And I went down to that Far East Comm Squadron and said, hey, any chance of getting some flying when I wasn't flying Shackletons? They said, absolutely. That Comm Squadron was there for all the chaps in headquarters and the Far East Air Force headquarters for them to keep their hands in. Nobody seemed to want to do that. So they were very happy for me to come along and do some flying. So I used to go flying vampires and meteors and Pembrokes to my heart's content. <laughs> Who did your conversion? One of the chaps on the comm squadron. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I mean, it's just a different world, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Very hard to imagine. 1958 now. this was. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. I used to go bombing around over the Malayan jungle, low level. <laughs> Flying for the sheer fun of it. Um, the F CNC of the Far East Air Force was the most wondrous gentleman, Air Chief Marshal the Earl of Bandon, who was known as the Abandoned Earl. <laughs> and he was a legend in his lifetime. He was an extraordinary man. He was one of those men. He didn't need to be in the Air Force for, f for a career. He was in the Air Force because he loved the Air Force. And he wasn't frightened about what he said or did. Um, he, he was the sort of man you'd have followed over the trenches in the Battle of the Somme, led, leading from the front. Excellent. Wonderful, wonderful chap. Excellent. I had a very happy time in Singapore, as you can probably probably gather. I think we I, both would have done had I had a chance to go there. I had a Sound ball. Marvelous. I had a ball there. Um, sadly, I ended up getting some sort of tropical gut rot and had to be Casavac back in a comet back to Lynham and I was grounded for about three months and I was based at Northwood during those three months and the medical problem sorted itself out and it's never recurred since so I don't know exactly what it was but I've then ended up going to Little Rissington in the summer of 1960 and did the flying instructors course there and that was that without doubt was the best course in terms of learning about your approach to flying that i've ever done in my life it was a fantastic course and it was a lovely summer and little rissington is a lovely place to be in the heart of gloucestershire and I made some very good friends during that course who remain friends to this day. And during the course, by the way, they said anybody who has never flown a hunter can have an opportunity to fly a hunter if they'd like. So I said, yes, please. <laughs> and I went down to Kemble and they only had, um, I think it was a Hunter 6, single-seater, they just gave me a thorough briefing, strapped a checklist onto my knee, put me in the cockpit, made sure everything was all set up properly, closed the lid, and there I was on my own. And I think my emotions ranged from sheer terror to exhilaration in, equal, in equal measures. It was quite a rocket ship, wasn't it? And I just 
I did three flights in that Hunter. Oh, wow. And that's when I first went supersonic in a sort of power dive over the Bristol Channel. And I got to 1.01 or something. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, got a certificate to prove it. And it just, I mean, it was obviously an aeroplane I would have loved to have flown. There's no question about that. Classy aeroplane. Absolutely sweet, yes. Mm. Absolutely. I'm going to take you back to an incident uh, you mentioned in your book. I love that you accidentally overflew London by uh, accident. But um, unlike the famous hunter pilot uh, Alan Pollock, uh, you decided not to beat up the Houses of Parliament and fly under Tower Bridge. But you said hello to your old school instead. What was that like? Well, well this c comes into the category of you should never do anything in flying if you haven't planned it properly. <laughs> I had been authorised to go on a general handling detail. And I thought, hmm, mum and dad have this school in Hartenden, just north of London. It's somewhere south of Worksop. I think I'll go down and beat them up instead of doing my general handling. So I just set off southwards. And eventually I was thinking, I think I ought to have seen Hartenden by now. And by now I was flying at about six, 7,000 feet, 8,000 feet, something like that, below cloud. And I suddenly became aware of the fact that I was now flying over the biggest conurbation that I had ever seen. And the next thing I saw was a river running across my path. And I looked to the left and there was the Tower of London. And I looked to the right and there were the Houses of Parliament. And I thought, oh, expletive, ducked up into the cloud so that nobody could see me, turned rapidly northwards and fled back up to Worksop. Never did find Harpenden, never did beat up my parents. <laughs> and I landed at Worksop with an absolute teaspoonful of fuel left. I was a very lucky chap. I spent months afterwards in mortal fear that I would be caught out. You never did come clean then? I never came clean about <laughs> it at all. And as you may or may not know, I do a lot of lecturing on cruise ships. And about three years ago, I was on this cruise ship and I do I, I tell this story in one of my lectures and this chap came up to me after the lecture he said hmm he said very interesting that story you told about flying over London he said I, I was an air traffic controller at London in 1957 and I remember seeing an airplane coming down from the north into the Heathrow control zone and then fleeing back up north again so he had spotted me, but they never identified me. Excellent. <laughs> well, he must have been very sharp-eyed. Uh, by now, you've uh, you've met Sue, your your lovely wife. Um, Thorny Island to Kinloss, at the other end of the country, where you were going to find Fly Shackleton, seems an awful long way away. But it was classic of the Air Force uh, to try and keep you apart, wasn't it? Yes, we, we, we weren't married at this point, um, Nick. Um, we 
we got married when I was actually in Singapore. Oh. And the way I got married, since we're on that subject, was I went out, as I think I probably said, with the, no, I'm not sure I did, but I actually went out with the very first Shackleton to go to 205 Squadron. And what was happening was that over a period of about six or nine months, the Shackleton Squadron at Changi was building up and the Sunderland Squadron up at Salita on the north end of Singapore was running down. So I did three ferry trips from Aldergrove out to Changi. And it was on one of these things that I came back early to do this ferry trip, got married, had my two weeks honeymoon, and then went out to Aldergrove to ferry yet another Shackleton out to Singapore. And then Sue subsequently came out to join me there. At the time I was at Thorny Island, I was engaged to Sue. And she was still nursing at St. Thomas's Hospital then. All right. Uh, actually, I wasn't engaged to her when I was at Thorny Island. No, 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 I wasn't. She was my girlfriend, whom I'd met at dancing classes when I was 15. <laughs> That's a very sensible thing to do if you're looking for a girlfriend, I suspect. <laughs> what, going to dancing classes? Yes. Hmm, yes. <laughs> Not that I can dance. <laughs> And when I was, uh, I did the, uh, the multi-engine conversion at, um, on Tavastis at Thorny Island and then went up to Kinloss to do the OCU and Sue came up to see me at some point during that OCU time and I proposed to Sue at this very romantic setting. Mm, it is, it's With lovely. the castle there. And the monster. And, and of course, this is long before... English Heritage or National Trust or Scottish Heritage or whatever it is that runs it now with all sorts of barriers and mm. railings and things. I mean, it was just the castle as it was, you know, sitting there. And I'm sitting there on a sort of escarpment looking down on the castle. And the pair of us were there and I proposed to her in that wonderful setting. Well done. And, uh, and she accepted me. <laughs> that I find remarkable. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> marvellous. Now, I'm, I'm lingering in your Shackleton time because it was a, a marvellous aeroplane. How serviceable were the Shackleton engines? I only ask this because whenever I met a Shackleton pilot, he would always glumly say, piston broke. Well, that's very interesting. You see, I've got, perhaps I've got a very selective brain that just, rubs out all these inconvenient things. I don't remember any problems. To me, the Rolls-Royce Griffin engine was a very serviceable engine. Well, I'm very glad to hear it. Um, and I've got no memories of endless shutdowns or problems with it at all. Excellent, excellent. Now, I uh, see you finished your QFI course at Little Rissy uh, as a B1 instructor. That's pretty rare. Did you enjoy instructing? I don't know how I did that. It was extremely rare. Oh. Yeah, it doesn't happen very often at all. Uh, don't ask me how I managed to do that, because well, I have no idea. You must have been an exceptional student instructor. Well, maybe. I don't know. My, my, my students who came along subsequently would be the people to judge that, not me. 
Now you had quite a list of interesting students at Syreston. Um Who was your most memorable? Well, I suppose, in a way, it would be Angus, the Marquis of Clydesdale, who subsequently went on to become the Duke of Hamilton. Ah, excellent. And he was a phenomenal character. I mean, he was a, a true British aristocrat, plus, plus, plus. Have you stayed friends? Well, sadly, no is the answer to that. You know, he went on to do whatever he did in the Air Force. He then went off to look after, he became the Duke of Hamilton when his father died. And very sadly ended up getting Alzheimer's, I think. Oh dear. And really um, didn't know what was going on anymore. And I, I, I always wish now that I had kept in touch with him, and I didn't. Mm. It's one of my regrets because he was a very colourful character who, who brightened the world enormously. Excellent, excellent. Um, but uh, you know, and another one was Jerry Lee, who went on to become a chief test pilot at Wharton, mm. and was very much involved with with the tornado, and I think also with the Eurofighter. So he was a very capable, capable pilot. And I've already mentioned the one I was talking about that I always feel that I shouldn't have perhaps got him through, but there we are. Uh, so, no, I've had some wonderful students, and there's some that I do keep in touch with, um, who ended up in BOAC. So uh, I do meet some of my old students from time to time. Excellent, excellent. Before we leave your time in the Air Force, any particular memories uh, that come to mind that we've missed out? Now, all I'd say about that eight years in the Air Force is that I am profoundly grateful to the Air Force for giving me the most fantastic training, for giving me the opportunity to fly all these different aeroplanes. Um, it was a, a grounding second to none, second to none. And I, I personally think all pilots should start their flying as military pilots because the military training, certainly when I was involved in it, and is, is just superb. And one of the things I've got a very strong feeling about is sort of recovery from unusual attitudes, which, you know, the, the Air Force really concentrated on that as, as an element in your flying training, as I'm sure you will agree. I hope you will. Oh, absolutely, yes. Uh, and then making, having to make a uh, instrument recovery on just the turn and slip. On the turn and slip. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly Those so. Those sort of days. No, exactly so. And I, I think that's an element of training in the civil world that has been lacking. I think there is now a realisation, as I understand it, that it is now recognised as being an important element of training. A bit late in the day, I uh, and I agree. And the trouble is that it would all be done on simulators, and nobody really has a simulator that can accurately reproduce the sort of things that you might end up with during a jet upset. No. But we're, we're straying from the subject. Now, I, I read that, like mine, your departure from the RAF, excuse me, 
coincided with the downturn in the civil world and that employment was hard to find. Uh, you had a wife and two children and yep. a big Rhodesian Ridgeback. That must have been a <coughs> bit of a concern for you. <coughs> yes, it was. I think I, before we actually talk about leaving the Air Force, I, I think I should mention that my departure from the Air Force was somewhat delayed. In February 1960, Sue and I had gone skiing in Zermatt. And I'd come back from this skiing holiday. This was with the RAF Ski and Winter Sports Association. And I went back to Sarsen, having visited my parents at their school, Sue's parents. He was a rector at Wheatamston, a town near St Albans, and they had a nursery school incorporated into the rectory. I'd gone up to Sarsden, I was back instructing, and I suddenly started feeling unwell. And then I'd feel all right. And gradually the periods I was feeling unwell got greater and greater, and I had to say to my boss, I'm sorry, boss, uh, you know, I'm just not up to it. I'm, there's something wrong. The senior medical officer came to see me. I'm not going to mention his name. And he thought I'd got, oh, I can't remember, he thought I'd got pneumonia, he thought I'd got this, he thought I'd got that. And then one day he was off duty and a young doctor who'd just come back from Aden came in to have a look at me. And I'll never forget this. At this stage, I was now having huge fevers and shaking and sweating. And he just came in and he looked at me and he said, where have you been? And I said, I've come back from Zermatt, why? Did you haven't been anywhere else? I said, no. He said, well, I can tell you what you've got. You've got typhoid. Uh, he said, obviously, the tests will have to confirm that. But he said, I've seen typhoid before. And the fact of the matter is typhoid is not something that presents itself as a problem in this country. And the senior medical officer had never seen anybody with typhoid. And he just didn't identify it. Sue and I, Sue was diagnosed with typhoid as well. And of course, the proverbial hit the fan then because we'd been to visit these schools. They had to shut the schools down, fumigate the schools. The Ministry of Health came all over the place. We were in hospital for eight weeks. Um, and at the end of this eight weeks, and part of the problem with typhoid is that the, the risk is that you could end up as a typhoid carrier. And that's basically why we're in for eight weeks. And then uh, I had to sort of send specimens off to path labs for about three years afterwards, mm. just to absolutely belt and braces to ensure that neither of us uh, had ended up as typhoid carriers, because that has serious implications if you end up as a carrier. But the Air Force decided that since I was leaving the Air Force, they didn't want to discharge me um, unless I was deemed to be fully fit. So they sent me to Headley Court, RAF Headley Court. Oh, lovely place. Where I had the most wonderful time. Poor old Sue had to 
go back to looking after the kids. And I swanned around in Headley Court for a month. Well, it's great. It's actually not far from uh, where I was brought up and uh, visited a few Air Force friends who were ejected and ended up there. Well, that's what the place was full of, people mm. with those sort of injuries. I felt a complete fraud <laughs> there, I tell you. And it was just a wonderful place to be. So um, my departure, as I say, from the Air Force was delayed as a result of all this. And as you've said, there was absolutely nothing going on in the airline world at that time. And I was literally writing to every flying school I could think of. I'd, oh, by the way, I'd done my commercial pilot's license exam papers on a, as a correspondence course mm -hmm. while I was in hospital with this typhoid. Oh, that was handy. Which was handy. I had eight weeks where I had nothing else to do. Um, and nothing, nothing, nothing. All sort of negative, negative, negative. And I just happened to walk in to McAlpine Aviation at Luton Airport, knocking on the door, and anything doing. And it was on a day when they'd just established that one of their pilots was going to have to lose his, well, had lost his license for a medical condition. Oh dear. And he actually stayed on um, as a sort of operations manager in McAlpine's and became a great personal friend of mine, a chap called Topsy Turner, who flew Lysanders during the war into oh, wow. France. Oh, dangerous job. Dangerous job, absolutely indeed. He had some stories to tell. So poor old Topsy had lost his license and I got the job. And that was a very interesting three years I spent at McAlpine's. It involved uh, a range of flying from Airways air, air, air flying in the Piaggio 166 on the Cessna 310, going to Europe all around the UK, to flying at the other end of the spectrum, an aeroplane called the Helio Courier, short takeoff and landing aeroplane, a very versatile aircraft for that sort of work. And that involved basically landing on little farm strips, paddocks, at Newmarket, that sort of thing, and taking jockeys and owners and trainers to race meetings. Mm. And it was fascinating. I mean, I got to know the English countryside quite intimately because a lot of this flying had to be done using a one-inch-to-the-mile ordnance survey map. You'd get sort of approximately to the destination and then you were sort of following it along on the ordnance survey map, going along this road here to the telephone box, turning right, and, and there's your field that you're landing in. Excellent. Very interesting flying. Yeah, you were pretty much a one-man band, weren't you? Yep, there was one other pilot um, for a while, and then we got a third one. I I became chief pilot of this of this great <laughs> enterprise. No, it was it was fantastic flying, and Kenneth McAlpine, who was the sort of uh, my ultimate boss, was a wonderful man. Really super chap. So it sounds like your first job with McAlpine uh, was excellent, but you were pretty much a one-man band. Yeah, I was pretty much a one-man band. Uh, we did get a second pilot, and then finally a third one, and I became chief pilot of this great enterprise. And um, it was it was fascinating, varied flying, but it was very hard work. I mean, in essence, uh, 
you're potentially on call sort of seven days a week. Um, they were very good employers and Kenneth McAlpine was my sort of ultimate boss who was a, a um, splendid man. He was a, a Spitfire pilot, pilot at the tail end of the war. Oh, wow. Yeah, and uh, a, a very, very fine gentleman who's still alive and very much alive and lives down in Lamberhurst, has oh. um, vineyards. Oh, lovely. He became one of the sort of first first uh, Brits to start up vineyards in this country. Um, anyway, I just basically knew that really what I wanted to get into the, with the airlines because I, I wanted to go long haul flying. And suddenly the airlines started advertising. I applied to Qantas, BEA and BOAC, British European Airways and British Overseas Airways. Well, I'm I sorry, got, I thought it meant better on a camel. Yeah, that's one of the interpretations. <laughs> sorry. Uh, and BEA pilots, by the way, in BOEC were always known as flat earthers because they never flew far enough to find out that the earth was round. <laughs> Since we're on this, oh, on this slightly facetious Excellent. Theme. No, no. But I'm <laughs> going to take you back to McAlpine's for, just for a moment. Oh, okay. I was Very dis well. dismayed to discover that you uh, uh, took up helicopter flying and nearly became a cropper in a chopper. Um, you must look back on choosing to fly those as one of your poorer decisions. I'd, you as a fixed-wing pilot will totally understand that helicopters <laughs> shouldn't be able to fly at all. Not either, like the bumblebee, <laughs> I'm sure. Just like the bumblebee, yeah. Um, not quite sure what happened. I was coming in to land uh, in this field and suddenly the helicopter, it was a Hilla 12B, started spinning around. And the famous Hutchinson inertial platform toppled. And I now became a passenger in this thing. And by the way, it only had a lap strap, no shoulder harness. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. And finally what happened was it, it beat itself to death on the ground. <laughs> and it was jumping up and down like this. And I was being thrown around all over the place in the cockpit, unable to sort of zero in on anything. And its final death throw is to leap up, turn upside down, and crash down onto the main rotor. So that effectively killed it, which was good. <laughs> so I'm now hanging suspended by this lap strap upside down. <laughs> and I could smell petrol dripping out, so I thought, mm, it's time to, get, time to get out of here. So I released the lap strap and landed on my head. Um, and then sort of surveyed the scene. And there was a great big hole in the perspex bubble. And I climbed out of this hole, cutting the back of my hand on a jagged piece of perspex as I went out. And I went off about 200 yards away from the airplane in case it's all blew up or something. And sat there rather disconsolately in, the, in this field. And I noticed that there was a tractor coming up towards me. And I thought, ah, oh, help is at hand. And this tractor came up and this good old boy driving the tractor said, uh, you're all right then, you're all right then. And I said, yeah, I think so. I just cut the back of my hand a bit and I'm a bit shaken. 
said, oh good, he said. And he just went back to his tractor, went back to his field that he was ploughing and he left me sitting there. I couldn't believe it. I thought he'd come to rescue me. <laughs> and, um, and what happened was that one of the other helicopters from this outfit, it was born, it was, um, God, I can't remember the name. It was based at Bourne near Cambridge. Can't remember the name of the company. And one of their heli other helicopters flew over and saw me sitting there and came in and picked me up. And I went in to see the boss of this helicopter company and said, terribly sorry, boss, I've written off your helicopter. And he looked at me, he said, oh, have you really? He said, well, that's good. He said, I've been trying to sell it for several years. <laughs> it had been used for crop dusting and I think it was all fairly rotten inside yeah. with you know, sort of um, various chemicals and things that had been carried in it. I gather the shaft of the tail rotor broke. That yeah, was the start that's, of that's, your troubles. That's, that was the start of the troubles. That's what caused <laughs> me to spin around. Mm, yes. Yeah. Good old Newton. We, he, sometimes he's not our best friend. Yeah. Excellent. Now, I also remember you had a special trick for smuggling wine back from France. Very useful. Mixing it with smelly cheese, as I recall. Oh, yes, yes. Smelly cheese definitely puts the customs people off. <laughs> they reel away from it. <laughs> I, I must when remember it, when that. It's, when it's ripened nicely <laughs> in a rather hot baggage compartment. Excellent. Excellent. Oh, well, I love that. So let's take you under your life with a BOAC. Uh, it was on the 707 you started. Uh, my father always thought of it as a rather agricultural aircraft after... He flew the VC-10. Did, did you enjoy flying it? The 707 was not an airplane you could say was enjoyable to fly, no. It was clunky. Um, you know, you sent a message from the control column and eventually it would transmit itself to the ailerons or whatever and something would happen. But um, no, it was it was a sort of Ford motor car of the of the airline world, I suppose. Airline it it world. suffered a bit from Dutch roll, as I recall. It did. It had a definite tendency for Dutch rolling. Um, so you had to be watch out for that. Um, but the thing that was a sort of complete shock to me, and this had never occurred to me, was that the first thing I had to do was learn to become a navigator. I had to do a flight navigator's course and somewhere upstairs in my one of our bedrooms I've got a, a flight navigator's license long since expired. Excellent. I mean I talk to pilots today and they can't believe this. Do you, do you still have your sextant? No. <laughs> I do could, not have Could you a, still do a star shot? I don't the... think I could. <laughs> I don't think I could. So you know the whole navigation of a 707 back then in 1966 was using periscopic sextants to take shots of the sun, the moon, the stars, and you had to identify the right star. Um, otherwise you'd make a horrible mess of the, all the calculations. You console. Um, oh, that was a Laran. tricky piece of kit. And, yeah. and that. Um, and 
and and and bearings from ADF bearings. You know, these are all the sort of things that you were using. And the route that they used to use to train you to do this navigation was London to Bermuda. That's a small just, target in a very big ocean. Now, just think about that. Exactly so. Yeah. And if you miss Bermuda, you're kind of stuffed. <laughs> uh, it concentrated the mind monumentally, I can tell you. Mm. It really did. And it was really hard work. I mean, I've done a 30-minute astro air plot from Bermuda back to London, and you just don't stop. Really? The moment you, you, do, you do your, your periscopics, sightings uh, you then use your sight reduction tables get it all into a form you can plot as bearings on a chart plot it all on the chart that now becomes a position that you were at maybe perhaps um, six or seven minutes ago and you then sort of project forward on the map and then you're going through the whole routine all over again um, it's seriously hard work and one of my nav instructors, by the way, with whom I flew a lot, was Norman Tebbit. Oh, wow. Later to become Lord Tebbit, mm, who yes. wrote the foreword for the book. Yes, and a uh, fine foreword it was as, yes, to, as yes. well. And a very fine man. But he's quite a gentleman, I understand. He's a wonderful gentleman. A wonderful, wonderful man. Yeah. And what was he like as a navigator? He seemed to be a very good navigation <laughs> instructor. He seemed to think I was doing all right, so <laughs> he was definitely a good instructor. Excellent. Well, that sounds brilliant. Anyway, so I can tell you that when I went on to the 747 eventually, mm. to find myself in an aeroplane with an inertial navigation system and not having to think about navigation any longer was just the most enormous relief to me. I never, I have to say, I never enjoyed navigation at all not not that formal navigation the responsibility was you know quite considerable um to keep that airplane on track absolutely um yeah absolutely. quite challenging yeah uh, those of us who've flown with triple inertials and dual uh, global positioning systems don't know how lucky no, we are no no <laughs> no absolutely right excellent um, so you had a rather troubled start to your career with BOAC with the destruction of Whiskey Echo and then you subsequently <laughs> crashed Piper Aztec. Were you beginning to feel you were in the wrong job? <laughs> there was, I suppose, a sort of slight element of that. <laughs> it was quite funny, actually. I'd, uh, Whiskey Echo was um, you know, a pretty traumatic experience. Mm. Um, although it it's 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 interesting it wasn't traumatic while it was going on perhaps you could tell the story it's only afterwards that it becomes traumatic and mm. shock sets in well to, 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 in a very sort of brief terms it was a 707 flight from London Heathrow to Zurich. In those days, all our Far Eastern flights used to go through a European destination before it went on any further. Mm -hmm. And the three European destinations were Frankfurt, Zurich, or Rome. Mm -hmm. And this was Zurich. And that airplane eventually was going to go on to Australia. 
there was a route check taking place. So the flight deck was pretty crowded. There was the captain, a senior first officer, a route check captain, flight engineer, and me sitting at the right at the back of the flight deck at the navigation station. It was a beautiful sunny day, gorgeous clear skies, beautiful spring day, perfect. And because we were only going to Zurich, we had a very light fuel load on board, and that's very significant. I mean, if it had been, say, a flight to Bermuda with a heavy fuel load on board, mm. the whole story might have been very, very different. All I know is that here I am sitting at the navigation station, right at the back of the flight deck, and about 20 seconds after we'd got airborne, there was this big bang and a violent lurch. And I remember hearing the captain calling for a severe engine failure drill. In those days, there was a distinct severe engine failure drill as opposed to just doing a fire drill. Mm -hmm. Subsequent to Whiskey Echo, BOAC changed that and for a severe engine failure, you automatically did a fire drill. But in those days, there was a specific severe engine failure drill, which did not involve pulling the fire handles. So were there no fire indications at that point? I have no ah. recollection of a fire warning light or a fire bell, not, mm. not, a, not at all. My first appreciation that there was a fire was the route check captain sort of peering out of the, peering out through the side window back at the left wing. And he said something like, oh, bother, the wing's on fire. Oh, God. <laughs> that must have come as a bit of a shock and to you. And that came, well, it came as a shock to all of us. <laughs> and at that point, the captain ordered the fire drill to be done. And he was all set up, the captain, who was flying, to do a full circuit back on 2.8 uh, left, as it was then. And the route check captain said, no, absolutely not. He said, you've got to get this airplane on the ground as soon as possible. He said, it'll never last, the wing will burn through and we'll end up crashing into the middle of London if you go around for a full circuit. And the captain flying was very reluctant to do this. It was eventually arm-locked into landing on 05, which doesn't exist now. It's a taxiway. That's a cross runway. No, I've landed on 23 at Heathrow, yep. but not on 05, and you're right, it doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't exist anymore, and it had no ILS. Mm, no, no instrument no approach at all. Nothing at all. So here's the captain flying. He's now been persuaded to land on 05 for mm. reasons I've just stated, and I have to say he did an absolutely superb piece of flying. Excellent. Judged the whole, th eyeballed the whole thing down to a, an immaculate touchdown, which is an extremely difficult thing to do on a 707, right at the beginning of the runway, because it was a short runway. Mm. It was only about 
6,000 feet long, I think. Mm. And he safely brought it to a halt on the runway. What we, of course, had not appreciated was that during this short flight, I mean, it literally lasted about three and a half minutes wow. from takeoff to touchdown. And in that three and a half minutes, the poor old senior first officer in the right-hand seat and the flight engineer were doing after takeoff checks, severe engine failure drills, fire drills, top of descent checks, field approach checks, landing checks. I mean, they were going like one-armed paper hangers. They would have been. They Absolutely. really were going balls out. Um, but what we hadn't appreciated was that this plume of flame coming from the wing during that short flight had been impacting on the tail and superheating the the tail fin area. Yeah. And of course, as soon as we stopped on the runway and there was no airflow to cool the tail down, the tail just went poof. Wow. And the whole fire worked its way up from the tail of the airplane forwards up the passenger cabin. Now we had about 120 passengers on board there were only two exits that were usable. Everything on the left-hand side was just awash with burning fuel. The rear right-hand galley slide exit. The steward at the back there got out on that exit and went down, but then the fire got the, got the slide and burnt it up. Okay. So that wasn't available. So the passengers all got out of that aeroplane, about 20 of them through the right-hand over-wing exit. Most of them ended up with broken legs or broken ankles because they had to jump off the wing onto the concrete. Mm. But, you know, they lived. And the other 100 went down the slide. And I tell the full story about this crash on cruise ships when I go lecturing. Mm. Because I think it's so important for people to be aware of the fact that cabin crew are not there to serve coffee and tea and meals and pamper you. They're there when it all goes horribly wrong to get you out. And if you've got a well-trained cabin crew, your chances of survival are hugely, hugely enhanced. And this cabin crew were fantastic. They imposed their authority on the passengers. I think they were, passengers were more frightened of the chief steward <laughs> than they were of the smoke, Excellent. dense black smoke, mm. and flames and explosions every now and then. A fuel tank would blow up or a tire would explode and the airplane would lurch one way and then lurch another way. And I remember standing in the forward galley area. I didn't have to do a thing. I just watched all these people going off down the slide, one after the other. And eventually, I realized that it was just me and the captain standing there in this. I don't know where the flight engineer had gone. I don't know where the senior first officer had gone or where the route check captain had gone. But they weren't there. And they, there was just me and the captain. And we sort of shouted and yelled. 
And this dense black smoke, by the way, you can't see more than about that far in front of you. And highly toxic. And highly toxic. And, and the captain said to me, he said, look, he said, I think everybody's off. And as far as we could tell, everybody was off. And we retreated back onto the flight deck. And I remember shutting the door behind me to stop the smoke getting up into the... And then the captain went out over the uh, out of this side window on the right-hand side and went down the rope, and I I followed him. In fact, I was the last person off the aeroplane. And I can remember going down this sort of strop with smoke pouring out of my fingers. So my one only injury was was severe rope burns from going down this strop at high speed. And it was all. I was all quite calm at this stage. And what then happened was we went to the medical center and I can remember Alan Sibold, who was the, um, the AOC doctor. He said, where do you live? And I said, oh, I live up um, near Stevenage. And he said, oh, I live up in that part of the world. He said, I'll take you home. Yeah. And he's, he was the sweetest man. He took me home and as we got uh, near to our house, he said, is there a pub nearby? I said, yeah, there is actually, Alan, just up the road here. He said, well, I think we'll go in there and have a quick drink before I take you back to your wife. And he poured two double scotches into me. I turned up in this pub, absolutely black. I mean, I was black from all this soot and stuff in my uniform. I don't know what the people in the pub thought as this apparition appeared. And Alan Sybil poured these two double scotches into me which didn't even touch the sides, and then delivered me home. And um, I subsequently discovered he didn't live anywhere near me at all, bless him. He'd driven miles out of his way to do this. A marvellous chat. But what we didn't realise, and there's always, I suppose, humour even in the blackest things, we didn't realise that this number two engine had actually fallen off. And it had fallen off into a gravel pit. And there was a far, it was Easter time, it was Easter holidays. And there was this father and the son and his son at the gravel pit fishing. And suddenly there was this enormous splash. And they thought, goodness me, this is the biggest fish we've ever caught. And that was the engine going splash into the gravel wow. pit. Wow. And I remember one of the tabloids had something along the lines, Captain Courageous jettisons flaming engine into gravel pit. <laughs> As though there's a jettison handle up yes. there on the flight deck. Oh, I'm fed up with this engine. I think I'll get rid of it. Pull the lever and off it goes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, good. quite extraordinary. Right. And the tragedy of the whole thing was that, and again, we didn't realize this immediately at all, but we had lost four passengers all at the tail end of the airplane and one very, very brave stewardess called Barbara Harrison, who was awarded a posthumous George Cross for her courage. Mm -hmm. She could have jumped out of that rare exit. There wasn't a slide there, but she could have jumped out. And she didn't. She went back into the airplane and tried to get these four passengers out. There were a lot of industrial troubles that were occurring in your company. Now this was about the same time that a BEA Trident went down at Staines and it was famously dis been discovered 
that graffiti had been scratched by the first officers on their table that read, Key, the captain, must die. The inquiry found that considerable friction existed between senior captains and junior pilots, such as you would have been around that time. Now, did you acknowledge this or experience any of this? Well, first of all, that Trident crash was BEA, mm. not BOAC, yeah, of course. Yes, of course. And we were separate entities mm. back then. Um, there is no doubt that a lot of the captains I flew with on 707s, who were ex-wartime Bomber Command pilots, were fairly autocratic. Um, and some of them, I have to say, not really up to speed with flying a four-engine jet aircraft. Having said that, many of them were very capable. So, you know, don't, don't get the impression that all these people were sort of slightly incapable ex-piston engine bomber pilots. No, they, no sure. Um, they were, they were, there was an element of that, but a lot of them were very good. And actually, funnily enough, one of my great regrets is that you know, these guys never talked about their war, very private. And I wish I'd had the temerity, if you like, as a sort of junior first officer to quiz them about their wartime experiences. Um, there's one chap I flew with, um, very colorful chap. Uh, I did my 747 conversion course with him and his party trick was to go out over the ocean in a 747 down to about 50 feet, head towards the Cliffs of Myrrh, and heave the aeroplane over the Cliffs of Myrrh. Well, that chap died not so long ago, five years or so ago, and there was an obituary to him. He was one of the dam busters. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> and I never, I, I had no idea. I had absolutely no idea. Well, I never. So, you know, that that is a regret I have. Um, I've sidetracked myself completely now. What, what was the original <laughs> question? Well, we were, <laughs> I was really trying to get at the, um, the oh, yes, pap authority Papa gradient. India, Papa that, India, I think, yeah, was the... That was it. it. And it was about the friction and the, the, the concern a, that between the young Hamble cadets yeah. uh, and these senior old pilots... Yes, it did. It, 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 there was some sort of industrial action. I don't think BOAC were involved in this. I think it was BEA that were oh, involved right, okay. in this particular spurt of an mm -hmm. industrial yeah. action. And there had been some massive row that this captain had had in the crew room. That's right. Before yes. going onto the flight deck. Mm. And he was in a very, obviously, in a very sort of agitated state. But partly state. because the senior captains were on one side and the junior first officers were on the other side of this dispute. Well, I, th I, I don't know who he'd had a row with, whether it was, it wasn't with, the, I don't think it was with the, the two first officers that were on that particular flight. I think he had come, come onto the flight deck and those two chaps were already 
present and correct doing checks and things. But suffice to say that the chap in the right-hand seat, as far as I'm aware, was a very, very junior um, uh, first officer. And the, he was being checked out by the more senior one. And this very irate, steamed up captain arrives and sits in the left-hand seat. And I think, quite frankly, the chap in the right-hand seat, this very junior chap, was terrified of him. Mm. And, and, and was just anxious beyond all belief to try and do, do all the right things. And the Trident had a slight flaw in it. I mean, I, th I think any airplane where you can retract the slats um, without sequencing it with the flaps is, mm. has, a, has a massive design flaw. Yeah, so, which they acknowledged in the end. Which they acknowledged. Yeah, and yeah. so when the order was given to bring the flaps up to whatever the setting was, he went and pulled the slats in instead. Mm. With tragic results. And effectively results. stalled the aeroplane. Yeah, tragic results. With tragic results. But you, you got on well with your captains at this point, or there was the odd one? I, yeah, they, they were autocratic, but, mm. you know, they, they were perfectly easy to get on with. You, you didn't have the... You, you weren't sort of having rows with them or anything like that. No, no, no. I mean, my main criticism was that many of them were very reluctant to give you any flying. Oh, really? And I think that probably partly stemmed from the fact that they weren't that confident in flying the 707 themselves, so they weren't quite sure, you know, they weren't too happy to give the flying away. Interesting. Interesting. Now, you obviously love flying the 747. Uh, was moving to the VC-10 for your command course a bit of a disappointment? The 747 was magnificent, yes. As I always describe it as a gentleman's aerial carriage, it's the most benign and comfortable, splendid aeroplane. Um, I mean, here it is today, in 2019, still mm. flying. But I do know that Boeing um, bet the bank on it. They, uh, they built this aircraft with about 25 orders from uh, Pan Am and they needed to sell 400 to make, yep. to save the company, to break even. Yep. It was, it, it, they, they, they did took a real the risk, didn't they? took they? a yeah. real risk. And, you know, here it is today still flying. Hmm. Uh, 50 years later, it's a, it's a remarkable aeroplane. Uh, so going on to the VC-10, well, the VC-10 was a delightful aeroplane to fly. Um, so I'd gone from one very nice aeroplane to fly to another very nice aeroplane to fly. Yeah. So, and I deliberately, I could have gone back to the 707 if I'd wanted to. Okay. I had the choice, you know, which do you mm. want, Hutchinson, 707s or VC-10s? I thought, well, I've never flown a VC-10. Let's have a VC-10. And it was a delightful piece of kit. Uh, going uh, aside from my script here, what was the command course like in those days? Um, quite intense and pressured, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, you... Um, I can't remember much about it. Um, I think the main thing I remember about it is all the trips I had to do under supervision before I was finally cleared as a captain in my own right. Mm. 
yeah. and each one of those under supervision trips was a sort of make or break exercise mm. um potentially so um you know you you had to be on your toes very much so, so. a tough course it was a tough course yes mm. Mm. um now you say that uh, in your book that BOEC had always preferred the 707, but at the time it was a bit oversized and underpowered for many of the old Empire routes. Uh, wasn't it the case that they'd gone to Vickers and specifically asked them to build an aircraft to operate from high, hot airfields, such as Johannesburg? Um, but when they built the VC-10 for them, they kind of reneged on the deal and didn't really want to uh, buy it? I don't know whether they, uh, my memory doesn't sort of encompass that, but what I do think certainly happened is that they started sort of trying to change the requirements that they wanted out of the aeroplane, sort of halfway through its sort of design. Uh, never a good and, idea. And it's never a good idea. <laughs> no. um, so it, it ended up not quite the aeroplane, I guess, that it, was, that it was supposed to have been. But it was but that's, That was the... That was the whole purpose of it, mm. in the in the origins of it was to hop and high airfields. So, so very much overpowered, a beautiful clean wing. Yeah, I envy you having the opportunity to fly it. Yes, no, it was it was a very nice airplane to fly. John, in your book, you quote an article that reminds us that both British Airways and Air France had the whole supersonic field to themselves. With that in mind, do you think we did the best we could with that advantage? I think so. I mean, I'm not going to speak for Air France. I think British Airways, to start with, didn't want the aeroplanes. I mean, back in 1975, 1976, it was a nationalized airline and basically what happened was the British government just said to BOAC, here are seven Concords, you are going to take them. And the management of BOAC at that time said, we don't know what to do with an aeroplane like this. Doesn't, they were only interested in sort of bums on seats and mass travel and a premium product like that just didn't fit into their corporate thinking at all. But, you know, they were compelled to take it on. And the first few years of the Concorde operation was very touch and go as to, you know, whether or not it was going to work. Mm. It was largely thanks to the drive of a chap called Captain Brian Walpole who absolutely campaigned vigorously for a change in attitude in the corporate management of the uh, of corporate thinking of the airline, ably assisted by a chap who subsequently went on to become uh, flight operations director um, in British Airways, although at that time he was a first officer, a chap called Jock Lowe. It'll be a name that's known to many people. And those two between them really sort of drove the Concorde project forwards. But it wasn't, 
it wasn't until the airline was privatised and John King subsequently to become Lord King of Wartleby. It wasn't until he arrived on the scene that Concord really came into its own. And one of the first things he did was to say to Brian Walpole, look, I, you can put your money where your mouth is. You've been going on and on about Concord and how it can make money. We'll set up Concord as an operating division in its own right in British, in British Airways, and you see what, whether, whether you can make it work. And it did. And the key milestone, I suppose, was clearance into New York. And the first flight into New York was in uh, November 1977. And that ended up as two scheduled services a day, the Speedbird 1 and the Speedbird 3. One left at 10.30 in the morning, the other 7 o'clock in the evening. And that was the bread and butter of the whole Concorde operation. British Airways, having got this completely transformed corporate management led by Lord King and Colin Marshall, um, they were willing to develop the Concorde into all sorts of areas and we ended up going to places like Toronto, we went to Barbados on a regular basis, and we did round the world flights all, and charter flights um, and it was a highly successful operation and very very profitable for the airline because what people tend to overlook is that British Airways never actually paid for those aeroplanes. They paid a sort of token sum of money as a transactional thing to acquire these seven aeroplanes. So they never had to write off the capital cost of seven Concorde. That hulls. probably would have brought the airline down. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. Probably would have done because who knows. It was a what... humongous amount of money. Yeah, humongous amount of money. So really, basically, my attitude has always been that British Airways was simply the custodian of those seven yeah. Concords on behalf of us, the taxpayer. Interesting. And I love it. Having, but having acquired those aeroplanes on that basis with that new management in place that gave a completely fresh drive to the whole way the aeroplane the whole way the airline operated, not just Concorde. And it was, they made it, they created an airline that I was very, very proud to work for. And I think everybody who worked in British Airways in the sort of mid to late 80s, they really felt that they were working for an airline that was pretty damn special, I can tell you. Um, so I think the answer to the question is that British Airways certainly, once we got this new team of management in place, did exploit that aeroplane to the full amount that it was possible to exploit it. Because you have to remember that it could only fly over oceans or over deserts. It wasn't cleared for f supersonic overflight over populated areas. Mm and you couldn't fly it subsonic for any length of time. Flying Concorde subsonic was a disaster. 
you lost about 30 to 40 percent of your range oh wow flying at subsonic speeds mm. it was a vehicle that was designed for one thing and one thing only and that was to fly at twice the speed of sound it's interesting had boeing managed to create a an equivalent uh, uh, and the russians t144 had that turned out to be a much more successful aircraft, do you think that would have, in the end, helped Concorde? Because the market would have been now quite impressive for uh, supersonic transport around the world. Well, I think if Boeing had produced one, it could well have done, because here, here, here is a, an element of cynicism, I'm afraid. I, I think there wouldn't have been any problem if it had been a Boeing supersonic airliner for it to have a supersonic corridor east to west across the United States. No, I think you're probably right. But who are we to say? Who are we to say? <laughs> well, suffice to say the SR-71 used to fly at supersonic speeds over the Interesting. mainland United States. Mm -hmm. The space shuttle, when it came in from space, was always supersonic as it came in towards uh, Kennedy Space Center. So, you know, there we are. Yes. I so, mustn't be cynical about the Americans, though, because <laughs> I can tell you that the New Yorkers absolutely love Concord. Took them a bit of convincing, though, didn't it? But once they were convinced, they yeah. were on board 100, 150%. Well, I, I have to agree, yeah. Now, I found it fascinating, some of your stories of the passengers on board, because I always associated bad behavior and uh, incidents with uh, low-cost carriers. But there you are on Concorde with a mad lady and a Swiss army knife. I know, I know. Absolutely bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> Going around stabbing people. <laughs> yeah, so it, it wasn't it just uh, the Ryanairs of this world. No, no. I've actually had somebody arrested as well. So oh, really? Tell yeah, us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we're about to start up at Heathrow, and the chief steward comes up and says, I've got a bit of a problem, Captain. And I said, what's the problem? He said, this chap's refusing to extinguish his cigarette and refusing to do up his seatbelt. So I said, oh, dear, I'd better come back and see him. So I get out of my seat, go to the wardrobe, put on my jacket, put on my hat, March down the cabin, there's this chap sitting there, all strapped in, good as gold. And I just went up to him, I said very politely, oh, thank you very much, sir. Delighted to see you've strapped yourself in, we can get on our way. He unstrapped himself, stood up, pulled a pack of cigarettes out of his pocket, stuck one in his mouth, lit it up and blew smoke all over me. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, oh, I see. I said, I'm terribly sorry, so I'm not going to be taking you. And I went off the airplane. I said to the dispatcher, could you get the police here, please? And the police sergeant and two constables arrived. And we went down in line astern, down the length of the airplane, back to where this chap was sitting. And once again, he's sitting there, all strapped in there, and no sign of a cigarette. And the policeman, police sergeant, asked the passenger to unstrap himself and, and get ready to get off the airplane. And this chap says, well, I'm doing what I'm told. I've got the seatbelts fastened and, and, you know, I've 
extinguished my cigarette. No, 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 said the police sergeant. You don't understand. The captain isn't actually going to take you. And I could see at this stage some doubt creeping into this police sergeant's face. You know, it was sort of my word against this passenger's word. And he was beginning to feel a bit uncomfortable. But anyway, he stuck with it and he put his hand on this passenger's shoulder and said, come on, sir, we'll get your cabin bags. We'll get the cabin crew to take that off. And as he put his hand on this chap's shoulder, he rounded on this police sergeant and said, take your effing hands off me or I'll thump your face in. <laughs> Whereupon the police sergeant got a very benign expression on his face and he started rocking to and fro on his balls of his feet to his heels. And he said, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, he said threatening a police officer in the course of his duty. He said, I'm terribly sorry, sir, you're under arrest. <laughs> so he was then frog-marched off with these two police constables, um, later to appear in Uxbridge Magistrates Court, where he was fined for a considerable sum of money for disrupting a flight. Excellent. There's a nice tale piece to the story, however. About six months later, a letter finally got through to me. It was addressed to the Captain Speedbird 1, uh, London Heathrow Airport. You know, sort of rather sort of vague addressing. And eventually it worked its way through British Airways internal mail system and got to me. And it was a letter from this passenger. And it was apologising for his behaviour. Oh, really? He, oh, wow. He was... Um, on medication for some medical condition. He'd been told not to combine drinking with that medication. He had been drinking because he was a nervous passenger. And that concoction, that cocktail mix of booze with the medication is what triggered off this irrational behavior. And he said, I just wanted to apologize and tell you what it was that lay behind it. He said, I'm not normally like that. Interesting. So he had the grace to apologise. I can see that being a Concorde captain, uh, you had access to luminaries from a wide circle. <coughs> but being given access to a box in Carnegie Hall must have been a great benefit. What did you like seeing there? Uh, concerts. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. I think the most memorable one I went to was Otto Klemperer conducting Beethoven's Ninth. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yes. Which was pretty special. But did uh, did you manage to get any other side benefits? No. I mean, to me, I, 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 I like music. And those classical musicians were a very special breed. I, in, in my view, they were all geniuses. Mm. They're on a totally different plane from the rest of us. They don't have to compete with anybody because they're above competition. Um, and they were all, without exception, fascinated by the operating of an, operation of an aeroplane. Okay. And, of course, we had fl open flight deck doors. Mm. I used to invite them up for come and watch takeoffs, come and watch landings. They'd sit up there during the cruise. Um, I mean, it was a totally different world, wasn't it? Well, indeed. Um, and a much more pleasurable world. 
And, you know, they were fascinated by it. And, I mean, Vladimir Ashkenazi, for instance, I flew him many times. He was like a Roman emperor, this sort of aquiline face, fantastic-looking chap. And um, I remember on one flight I did with him, he asked me for my address. And I gave him my address and thought no more about it. And about two or three weeks later, a jiffy bag arrives from Geneva, Switzerland, and it contained two long-playing records, one of him conducting, one of him playing, and on the record sleeves, you can tell how long ago it was, record sleeves, um, he'd written to John Hutchinson with many thanks for many memorable Concord flights. And oh. when I looked at the writing on the record sleeve, it was the same writing as on the jiffy bag. So, oh, so he parceled them up himself. Ashkenazi had parceled these up himself and taken them down to Geneva Post Office and posted them oh, to me. Very nice. <laughs> what a lovely Which man. Which is pretty special. Excellent. Yeah. I read with great interest about your conversation with the BBC from Concord as you flew over St. Athens uh, Air ah. Show. Now, I was just curious on the technical aspects. Uh, how did you achieve that? Was it an HF foam patch or something similar? No, it was VHF. What was it? Yeah. So you had to speak quite quickly. Yeah. Because you were going to be out of range pretty yeah. soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you the story then. Mm. So, because this is how I actually basically got into, into working with the BBC. I'd been asked by British Airways a couple of days before the flight you know, would you mind doing a little piece for the BBC as you, as I flew past St. Athens? I said, yeah, sure, of course I will. And I thought, well, there's no point in going overhead at 28,000 feet because they won't see the aeroplane. So I had a word with the air traffic controllers and said, this is what I'd like to do. I'll, I'll climb up initially to 28,000 feet and then as I as we're getting towards St. Athens, I'd like to descend under radar control down to 6,000 feet. And if you can guide me over, over St. Athens. So that's exactly what I did. This is a scheduled flight <laughs> with passengers going to New York on business trips. And we go right over St. Athens and I call up, uh, BBC St. Athens, this is Speedbird Concord 001, do you read? And it was Raymond Baxter on the other and said, Speedbird 001, this is BBC St. Athen. I read you loud and clear. Go ahead with your message. And I then did a spiel as we flew over St. Athen along the lines that we owed the freedom of us, the skies that we enjoy today to those brave people who laid down their lives in the Battle of Britain. And... Um, I hope you all have a wonderful Battle of Britain air show. And now I must get on my way to New York and open the throttles up and zoomed away and we carried on to New York. And when I got back, Sue said, there's a chap called Dougie Hesp who's been trying to get hold of you from the BBC. So I said, oh, really? What's his number? And she gave it to me. And I rang him up and he said, oh, he said, you've got a great voice for broadcasting. He said, very distinctive. He said, I want you to come up here and we'll do some tests because we'd like to use you 
as a sort of um, as a commentator for air shows. So I went up and did these tests and passed. And then I negotiated with British Airways, who were delighted because now they had a Concorde captain presenting programs for the BBC. So it was it was great sort of um, promotion for British mm. Airways. Mm. So it was a sort of win-win situation. And I had a wonderful time with the BBC, going to all these different air shows, Mildenhall, Biggin Hill, Fairford, all sorts of things. And, um, and as a result of that, of course, I got one of my more memorable flights in my logbook, a flight in the Harrier. Oh, marvellous. Yes. So that was fun. Who was the pilot? It was a chap called... I've put you on the spot, I'm you sorry. You have. <laughs> yeah. Air Force chap or a test pilot? No, he's an Air Force chap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember his name. It's in my logbook. Oh, well, well. It's in my logbook. Yeah, we, we'll look for a posterity, perhaps. Excellent. Now, um, part of this was you uh, jumping out of an airplane uh, while doing commentary. It, I was a bit taken aback that you broke the golden rule of all right-minded pilots jumping out of a serviceable airplane, but what was it like? Um, <laughs> bloody stupid thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> what people do just to feature on television. <laughs> I gather it went very well, though. Yeah, I mean, i tell you what, the instruction I had, it was at Weston on the Green with the guys who train the special forces. You don't get better instruction than that. And they're checking you every inch of the way, constantly telling you things and then questioning you to make sure that you've taken the board what it was they just told you. And having done all this sort of ground training, we then went up in this um, islander up to 12,000 feet, I think it was. And I jumped out doing what's called accelerated freefall. Oh, wow. Where you jump out with a chap on each elbow. So I went out. There were three RF jumpers. One with a camera and the other two, one on each arm. And we'd go into the into the free fall position with them hanging onto my arms just to stabilize me and at one stage I remember the guy with the camera was filming me I could sort of looking at him straight on like this and I started waving to the camera I thought that'd be clever and I promptly of course because I was no longer in the proper free fall position I got myself completely unstable and these two chaps had to Grab me tight and get me locked back into the free Aerodynamics, position. John, how could you have forgotten? <laughs> and at 4,000 feet, I then pulled the ripcord. And that was fantastic. It was a square parachute. It was an aerofoil. A rectangular parachute, I should say, rather than a mushroom-shaped parachute. And it's a glider. And I was completely at home. I love and it. And the contrast between the dynamic experience of free fall and gliding along under this wing 
It was quite dramatic, actually. Mm. And I was just in seventh heaven there. And I was doing, I was doing sort of stalls and turns. And, and, and of course, what you actually do is you come in downwind, base leg, final approach. And I landed. Excellent. Right on the edge of the landing spot. And they were all frightfully impressed. I said, well, I'm a pilot. I ought to be able to judge glide <laughs> angles. It would have been pretty rum do if I had missed the landing spot completely. I know plenty of pilots that have missed. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, I see you started a company, Flying Concord Charters, for car salesmen. Uh, I'm joking, of course, but um, these charters and others you mentioned sort of tells me that the aircraft's utilisation rate for scheduled flights wasn't very high and that you were having to dream up new ways of using it. Was that really the beginning of the writing on the wall for the Concorde fleet? That was the beginning of, of, of really getting the aeroplane accepted for charter flying. I mean, British Airways didn't want to charter the aeroplane at all. Oh, really? Start. No, no, no. No, they f thought it was all going to be far too complicated to do mm. that. Um, you know, let's just stick to our scheduled destinations and leave it at that. And it was people like me with this charter club, as we called it. A group of us had got together. Um, a chap called Jock Lowe that I've already mentioned, Mick Burke. A uh, flight engineer called Bill Brown and myself did that. And then eventually this led the way to a company called Goodwood Travel coming on the scene. And they had the resources and the expertise to make a far better job of, of what, what we essentially did was to prove that charters could work. Mm -hmm. And British Airways now realised that charters could work. And that then enabled people like Goodwood Travel and others to come on the scene and do it on a, on a much more professional basis than we were ever able to do. So that was our, I think the first Concord Charter ever was organized by a chap called Brian Calvert, who's a very eminent captain on Concord, mm. who'd been one of the nucleus group of pilots that was seconded to British Aerospace before the aeroplane ever entered service. Oh, wow. And did their training with Brown Trubshaw and mm -hmm. John Cochrane and people. And he organized um, a Concorde charter for his pub. <laughs> I love it. At Allsworth in Berkshire. Huh? And uh, that was the very first charter that was ever done, I think. And that sort of opened the opened a crack in the door which we sort of exploited and, and eventually you know the charter side of things became almost as important as the schedule side of things because what it did was well various things it enabled us the taxpayer to go on Concord in, at, at an affordable price um, and B, it, the publicity that it got going to all these different destinations was enormous positive publicity for British Airways. Mm. So it became a very, very successful part of the whole Concorde operation. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. 
Um, something that uh, I took from uh, another interview I listened to, uh, that of uh, David Davis, the uh, Air Registration Board test yep, pilot. Yep, yep. He said that the initial design for Concorde was when the nose was up, uh, the windshield would be covered by a solid metal visor. Um, now, he said that he and the Air Registration Board would have been happy to certify the aircraft uh, in that design, but it was the American FAA that insisted on having glass uh, that they could see through even when the nose was fully up. How would you have felt flying uh, inside a metal box with steel shutters over the windshield? No, I think... David Davis was wrong in his thinking about that. Okay. I really do. Um, and <laughs> that clear glass, that visor that you could look through, um, did have value. I mean, I remember on one occasion we were flying to New York and it was south of Gander somewhere and I saw this white ball in the sky. I have to say that there was little I could have done about it because by the time I'd sort of registered this white ball in the sky, the next thing was it was whizzing past off our right wing somewhere, about a mile away to the right hand side. And it was a meteorological balloon. Oh wow. <laughs> with all of its box of tricks hanging mm. underneath. Um, I don't know what would have happened if it had been directly on course. Um, well, it's supposed to be frangible, but when you're doing Mac 2... Yeah, well, I don't know a... whether the shockwave would have would have blasted the thing out of the way. Might mm. have done. But you wouldn't really want one to go down engine, would you? No, no, you would not. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, so, you know, I was able to see that. I would not never have even seen it if, um, if it had been a solid visor. Hmm. But it was a marvellous testament to the technology that they managed to eventually create glass that was capable of withstanding it was the temperatures and the pressures. Fantastic the glass, yes. Mm. Absolutely. Made by Triplex, I believe. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, no, it was, did a good job. Now, although your flights were delightfully short, albeit perhaps uh, as a result your remuneration wasn't quite as high as it could have been. Were there any efforts to monitor your uh, radiation levels when you were flying Concorde? Yes, they were very concerned about that, the regulators, yeah, yeah. And that's what led to the fitting of a radiation meter. Oh, you had and one on board? We had one on board. Mm -hmm. And it was colour-coded, green zone, amber zone, and a red zone. And if it ever went into the red zone, there was a drill for it, and that was basically to descend below 48,000 feet into, into thicker air. Wow. Which would have incurred a massive fuel penalty doing mm. that, by the way. And as far as I'm aware, I'm absolutely certain it never happened on a British Airways flight, and I'm pretty sure it never happened on an Air France flight that they ever had a radiation alert. Having said that, I was coming into Heathrow one day and we were at 6,000 feet just south of Aldermaston and suddenly there's this bong and a red light and the radiation alert. 
I think it was a leaky day at Aldermaston. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I, don't think, I don't think people living near <laughs> Aldermaston would have loved it. No, no. But it's interesting, uh, considering all the Met forecasts and things that we consider, did you actually get forecasts of solar flares and that sort of thing that might have raised the level of uh, radiation? No, we didn't. Okay. No. I was just curious. Brilliant. Now, it, personal question from me here, really. Taxing out in Concord, you always seem to have priority over other traffic that was on the ground to save fuel. How did you can feel about continually queue jumping? I think that's a bit of a distortion, Nick. Are you sure? At, 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 <laughs> at Heathrow, they were very, they're wonderful air traffic controllers at Heathrow, but they're British, you know, and you don't go queue jumping. And we used to just wait in the queue for really? the taxiway. Yeah, so yeah, 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 yeah. Honestly, cross my heart. <laughs> okay, I'll take your word. I'll, How about I'll, New I'll, York? I'll tell you a different story about New York. Yes, though. well, uh, <laughs> I can't say I spent a while in the queue at New York, the, that's the for New sure. The New York controllers had no such compunctions. <laughs> <laughs> I was in a holding pattern at 25,000 feet or something in this Concord, and you can't be in a holding pattern in the Concord. I mean, you're burning as much fuel per hour in a holding pattern as you were when you were flying at Mach 2. Oh, good Lord. And, get, and getting absolutely nowhere. Mm. Um, and so you can do maybe one turn and then you say, we're diverting. And I just said to the co-pilot, please request a diversion to Windsor Locks, which is about 60 miles northeast of Kennedy Airport. And he put in this request and Kennedy Airport came back quick as a flash. They said, okay, turn right, do this gave us several different frequency changes. We ended up on a discrete frequency, just us and New York. And they said, you're cleared now to turn left, establish on ILS 22 left approach Kennedy Airport. Oh, we, I love it. We never requested that. Wouldn't have dreamt of requesting it. They had queue jumped us. <laughs> The EQ jumpers. Well, now I know about it, I'm going to resent it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, uh, I know I, in the Air Force, occasionally dropped a supersonic boom over land. Uh, did you ever do it in Concord? Yes, we did. Um, we had a route to Bahrain, and that route was subsonic from Heathrow across Europe to Venice. We'd get out into the Adriatic and then accelerate up to Mach 2. Down the Adriatic, heading in a sort of southeasterly direction, then turning left and going south of, um, where would we be going south of? Greece and Cyprus and all this lot, and heading east now and going straight over the Lebanon and Syria and Iraq supersonic all the way to Bahrain. <laughs> Was that because you uh, didn't expect anyone in Lebanon <laughs> to complain? <laughs> I don't know how that was negotiated. <laughs> Not, nothing to do with me, Garth. <laughs> I love it. Um, I guess in a way they had so many bombs and things going off in Lebanon because this was all, you know, this is, these are areas at war 
and a, the odd sonic boom. What the hell was that, you know? <laughs> now, on climbing into Concord, this is off another interview, you once said of it, none of this poncy glass cockpit. Do you have strong feelings nah. about modern cockpit design? No, no, no. <laughs> Not really. I just, I just love saying it because I like dials and needles and things like that because that's what I've been used to all my life. No, I was just going to make the point that at the time it was probably one of the most advanced cockpits that were flying around. Yep, yep, yep. Excellent. Now, here's one that might create a little bit of uh, a discussion. After the Air France Concorde crash, yep. the operating captain seemed to have made a number <coughs> of critical errors, such as taking too much fuel, um, bags, additional bags that led him uh, to be departing overweight, uh, then accepted a tailwind. Um, what was it about the culture on that flight deck that prevented his crew from intervening? Was it something to do with the prestigious position he was in as being uh, the captain of an aircraft like Concorde? Oh dear. I, I, th I think for a start the Air France Concorde fleet had a slightly gung-ho culture anyway and that is actually recorded in the in the French accident report into that crash. There is somewhere in that accident report, I've got a copy of it upstairs, an English version of it. And it does criticise this rather press-on attitude of the, of the Air France Concorde fleet. Um, so I think there was a sort of endemic culture that existed within Air France about the operation of the aeroplane. Um, as far as that particular flight was concerned, I know that that captain was considered as an absolutely ace pilot. He'd windsurfed across the Atlantic. He was a fantastic skier. He was very charismatic. And my own reading of it is that the first officer and the flight engineer on that flight had almost got the attitude, well, if Christian Marty thinks it's okay to go, then, you know, who am I to question him? I don't think he's overbearing. I mean, I've, I've looked through the cockpit um, voice recorder traces and there's nothing overbearing about it. There's, um, you know, there's nobody act the fact of the matter is nobody questions anything. It's just, you know, if, if the captain's happy with it, I'm happy with it. We won't question it. Um, I'm in a bit of trouble with, with, with talking about this, by the way, because um, Pilot Magazine, the current issue, has just published an article by a chap called Pat Malone. I don't know who Pat Malone is. And, he is very critical of me. And he ends this article by saying that the Air France flight crew were blameless and I have no business to be criticising them. I don't enjoy criticising them at all. I'm sure it's, you're doing, it gives doing me, what the 
your interpretation of what the extra it report gives says. me no pleasure at all um, absolutely none but how on earth mr malone thinks that those flight crew members were blameless is beyond me the airplane was over the maximum structural takeoff weight over the maximum structural takeoff weight it was beyond the aft limits of center of gravity it accepted a clearance with a tailwind an eight knot tailwind that effectively put it at something like six and a half to seven tons over the weight it should have been at. It embarked on this takeoff with the captain, I assume, well aware of the fact that his COG was beyond the aft limits. So the transfer valve and the booster pumps were on, transferring fuel along the length of the airplane from tank 11 in the tail cone up into the wing tanks. So fuel was being pumped up the length of the airplane throughout that takeoff run, effectively filling up those already full tanks and keeping them full. Um, that was completely contrary to correct procedures. That fuel transfer business is not supposed to take place during the takeoff at all. That's supposed, the shut-off valve's supposed to be shut and the boost pump's off. Um, so, you know, you look at all these these things and, and de depressingly, really depressingly, nobody on that flight deck is questioning that captain. The co-pilot never puts his hand up and says, hey, hang on a minute, skipper. We've got a tailwind. I think we've got to recalculate our speeds and all the rest of it. No question of sort of saying, well, why not go down to the other end of the runway and take off in the opposite direction? I mean, it really was a crash that never should have happened. It's deeply depressing. And in the accident report, they blame two things. They blame a piece of metal on the runway which was indeed one of the errors in the error chain, but only one of a whole series of errors in the error chain, and on design weaknesses in the aeroplane. There's nothing to do with design weaknesses in the aeroplane. To me, Concorde is about the safest aeroplane I've ever flown because it, it was built like a proverbial brick lavatory. I mean, I'm serious now. I mean, it looks beautiful and elegant. It was as tough as old boots. Um, I mean, they, the manufacturers had memories of the Comet blowing up, three Comet airliners that blew up through explosive decompressions, and they were quite neurotic and about the same sort of thing happening with the Concorde. So it was really over-engineered. Very, very strong aeroplane. I, I don't know. I've, 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 I shall respond to this article in due course when I um, when I get get around to it, but um, but how on earth it can be said that the flight crew are blameless is completely beyond mm. my comprehension. Yeah. I'm sorry, they were to blame, and uh, you know I've spoken at length to two Air France Concorde pilots who would both totally endorse 
my views about this without I, I any think, question. I think you're best placed to uh, give a, a, an accurate opinion on that. Um, how would you uh, best describe BA's decision to ground Concord after all the modifications following the Air France crash have been done? Well, I think British Airways basically had no choice. Air France did not want to go on flying it. They never wanted to go on flying it after that crash. I don't know, you, you probably, I, I didn't even know if it's in the book, but that Concorde that day came within 20 feet of hitting a 747 that was parked mm -hmm. by the left-hand side of the runway on a taxiway. Yes, you, you mentioned that. And that airplane had on board President Sherek and his wife. They'd mm. come in from a state visit to Tokyo, to, to Japan, and flown in from Tokyo. So that day, Air France came within 20 feet of one of their Concords hitting one of their 747s with the President of France on board. It doesn't bear thinking about, does it? No, it does not. But having said so, that, BA had still a very successful operation with the aircraft. Yep. And yes, they spent all that money modifying <coughs> it. Yeah, but the trouble is that Air France didn't want to go on with it. And in, 19, in 2003, with that Iraq War II happening and passenger loads decreasing and suddenly Air France finding itself flying with half a dozen Concorde passengers, um, they were hemorrhaging and they never wanted to go on with it anyway. Mm. They would have been very happy to have grounded it immediately after that crash and never to have it flying ever again. And it was only because they were locked into this agreement with British Airways that um, all these modifications, which were fine, you know, I've got no problems with the modifications that were done, but to try and sort of suggest that that was a solution to prevent such a crash ever happening again was absolute nonsense. So when, as I say, the Iraq War II happened, they went along to see Airbus and just said, look, we can't go on like this. Uh, what are we going to do? And Airbus just simply said, we'll hike up the product support cost of, of the aeroplane to a level British Airways can't afford. Now, I suppose British Airways could have challenged Airbus's decision in court, but the fact of the matter was, it was quite clear that Air France did not want to go on operating the aeroplane, and we're not going to go on operating the aeroplane. And British Airways would find it very difficult to do so on their own. So um, basically, I think British Airways were left with no choice but to, but to endorse the decision to ground the aeroplane, yeah. which I think was tragic. Yeah. Uh, it should have been allowed to retire honorably and gracefully, not sort of press-ganged into retirement. So having retired and left your fast, sleek, droopy-nosed mistress behind, I'm glad that you found plenty to do, but a bit concerned at the number of life-threatening accidents you seem to have had. Do you have an explanation? <laughs> I, I, I've, I've tried many, many times to, to dispose of myself and failed on each attempt, so... There we are. Fate, is, fate has obviously singled me out as somebody who's singled out to survive. <laughs> That's very good. Uh, now, I've visited Concord at the Intrepid uh, Museum in New York. Yep. 
I would describe it as little more than an awning for the cafe. Who do you think's done the best job of displaying the retired Concords? Ah, that's a very good question. I would have said Barbados. Uh, but sadly, the Barbados one's closed at, uh, at the moment. And oh. it's, it, they just haven't got the funding. Oh. So they've got this wonderful hurricane-proof hangar that it lives in right alongside the airport. Mm. And it's all closed up, which is a tragedy because those team of people in Barbados who were looking after it were so proud of it. Mm. And it was, of all the Concords, that was probably the best kept and best looked after. Wow. It was very, very well presented. Having said that, Barbados is closed. Um, the one at Bristol, at Filton, that's uh, at whatever they call it, Bristol um, Aerospace Museum or whatever its official title is, that is very well presented. I've been to see that. The one in Manchester is very well presented. Mm, I've been up there too, yes. Um, I haven't been to the one in Edinburgh. There's one up there. I must go up there sometime and have a look at that. Um, probably the best museum for the sort of overall Concord experience is probably Brooklands. Because oh. they've got there a Concord that never actually flew with British Airways. It was the it was a pre-production model, which was cut up and taken by road to Brooklands and then rebuilt by people at Surrey University. Wow. As part of their sort of university course. Oh, as a great were. idea. And there it stands in Brooklands with all its seats and things in it and, and sort of projections of what a typical supersonic flight looked like. And Excellent. It's very well done. And furthermore, and for anybody who watches this, please go to Brooklands and go and fly the simulator. Because that's the simulator that I used to fly in my training at Filton. The simulator was removed from Filton, taken to Brooklands. And the idea was going to be that it would just be there as an object that pe people could sort of walk on to and look at the simulator. This is where they did their training. Not a bit of it. A team of geeks from British Airways, from the electronic sort of side of things and, um, and, and other hydraulics and all the rest of it got together and they got that simulator working. They fitted to it a better visual system than I ever had <laughs> when I was flying it. I love it. It was a wonder. It's a wonderful visual system, and you can buy yourself a sort of half-hour Concorde flying experience and go flying under the uh, Brooklyn Bridge or whatever else you want to do. Supersonic. <laughs> You're probably why, why, not quite supersonic. I think. I don't think our, our flight envelope allowed for that. <laughs> Excellent. But it, it, it's really good fun. It's a, it's a wonderful museum and well worth visiting. Wow, um, also, there's a Concorde on display in Seattle, the Museum of Flight in Seattle. And I'm very proud of the one there because it attracts more people going on board than the presidential 
747 sitting next door to it. That's, that's what that's the museum at Boeing Field, is it? Yeah, yeah. Lovely, yep. lovely to have a Concorde in the heart of Boeing. It's lovely to have a Concorde <laughs> in the heart of Boeing. Exactly, Excellent. exactly. Now, looking back on your long and illustrious career, John, what do you tend to think of as your greatest achievement? Oh gosh, I th I, th I think it has to be having the luck to be in the right place at the right time to get on to Concorde. I mean, Concorde has meant so much to me and has been so much an integral part of my life. Um, I mean, I was, I'm married to Sue, but I was also married to Concorde. Your droopy-nosed mistress. She was a very beautiful droopy-nosed mistress. <laughs> I love it. Needle-nosed mistress as well. Oh, right. Okay, Might well. have a droopy nose, but it was, <laughs> it was a pretty sharp pointed nose. Your adoption of the uh, Royal National Lifeboat Institute as one of your favourite charities reflects your love of the sea. Should any of our listeners want to contribute in thanks for you giving your time to us today, how may they do so? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure the RNLI has a website and if they wanted to contribute via that website, I've never done it myself, but um, um, I'm sure it's possible. And if they wanted to record the fact that this was in response to listening to me rabbiting on about Concorde and other aeroplanes, um, I'd be very delighted if that sort of recognition was given. Um, it might just amuse you all to know why uh, I do this for the RNLI. I used to have a yacht, which I shared with various other friends, and I'm sailing one October day from Lowestoft down to the River Deben, down the east coast. And it was a cracking day for sailing. Beautiful weather, uh, northeast wind, force four to five. We were going like the clappers. And with me, there was soon myself on board and a very good friend of mine who used to be my neighbor, uh, ex-naval officer called George Wells, and his wife. Now, his wife's parents, lived in Thorpe Ness, just to the north of Alborough. And we had arranged that we'd sail past Thorpe Ness at midday and wave to them. And by some miracle of maritime navigation, we got there more or less precisely at midday. And we're all waving furiously at this house and no sign of the elderly couple. So we're now going round round circles sort of waving and waving and waving and waving. And eventually I go down below and I pulled out a, like a, I don't know, 50 million candle power lamp or something. And I fire this lamp up and I had to start the engine up before I did that because it would have drained the battery <laughs> flat in no time. So now picture the scene. There are four of us in the cockpit. Three of us are waving furiously and the third one's trying to direct, a fourth one's trying to direct this, this lamp at the house. And eventually the couple come out and they wave to us. Brilliant. I put the lamp away, we carry on sailing. The next thing on Channel 16, yacht off Albra, yacht off Albra, this is Albra lifeboat, do you read? 
And as this radio call came through, we saw this maroon rocket going up. It was the bloody lifeboat being launched. So with a heavy sinking heart, I picked up the handset and I said, Over a lifeboat, I'm a yacht off over. I'm read, reading you loud and clear. Go ahead with your message. And they said, we've had reports of a yacht in distress off Thorpe Ness. <laughs> I said, what was the nature of the yacht's distress? And they said, well, the crew were all trying to attract attention. And there's somebody flashing SOS with an Aldis lamp. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So I said, well, we've just sailed past Thorpe Ness. And we were indeed waving to some friends of ours who live there. I said, I can't account for the flashing light. I said, that must have been the sunlight off my gin and tonic. <laughs> <coughs> and they said, huh. They said, well, we've launched the lifeboat now and we're going to have a search around. And please maintain listening watch. And about 15 or 20 minutes later, they called up again. They said, are you sure you're not in distress? And I said, I'm absolutely certain. We're having a lovely sail. I'm so sorry you've been troubled. And they said, oh, OK, we're going back to the lifeboat station. We can't find anybody. I said, no, I don't think you'll find anybody. I think we're the only, only people sailing. And that was that. And I felt a, this enormous sense of guilt. And I thought, what can I do about it? And I thought, well, I tell you what, I'll do talks for the, about Concord and raise money for the lifeboats. Because you've been trying to make up for it ever since. And I've been making up for it ever since. <laughs> Good for you. And well, I think I've just about repaid my debt. I hope so. Well, it's been an absolute delight talking to you. You have had a marvellous flying career, and I'm truly jealous of it. Um, I'm sure on behalf of all our listeners to the uh, Plane Talking UK podcast, and a personal thank you uh, for giving us your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much indeed, John Hutchinson. Well, thank you, and it's been a great pleasure talking to you as well, Nick, and, and to meet you. So uh, I hope we shall see more of each other in the future. I, I hope so, too. Or another. Thank you very much anyway, indeed. Many thanks. So this is more than just a book about aviation. John Hutchison grew up in India, where his family lived, uh, through the country's troubles during the transition to independence. Anyone interested in Anglo-Indian history will find the first part a remarkable first-hand account of what it was like. John's personal life of joyous success and family tragedy punctuates the book and it gives a very intimate picture of his life and he provides us with a very honest and touching look into his world. His extensive flying career stretched from the Harvard to Concord and back again to his venerable Oster Aglet. It's a remarkable record of the path, not always smooth and straight, that he's taken through some of the most exciting times to exist in the short span of time that encompasses the world of aviation. His description of flying the wonderful aircraft that he has in his logbook are fascinating and enough to satisfy an enthusiastic aviator without overwhelming a casual reader. By his own admission, he's lived a charmed life, but he's done so with grace and good humour. The wind beneath my wings makes a great read.